And we've seen so far how uh, Tamar restored hope to Judah's unworthy line, from which would come the one who would bring hope to an unworthy world. And last week, Pastor Glenn walked us through Rahab's story, uh, the story of the prostitute who made peace with God and brought peace to her own household. Her story speaks to us of the one who came to make possible peace between God and humanity. And this morning we visit the story of Ruth and of the four women whose stories we have and, and will delve into this Christmas season, Ruth has probably made it through Christian history and tradition with her reputation most intact. The book of Ruth and indeed Ruth's own story is much loved. And what's not to love about it? For starters, it's only four chapters long, so it's very easy reading. There's a happy ending, and who doesn't love a happy ending? And one of the predominant themes, certainly the one that most people would remember, is that of loyalty. The great loyalty displayed by Ruth towards her mother-in-law, Naomi. Who doesn't love the book of Ruth? So many of you, like me, I'm sure, would know and love this story. And the familiarity that we have with this story can sometimes be a little bit problematic. And for me, it was a bit of a stumbling block when I came to deciding how we would tackle this message this morning. There's that story of great loyalty. There's a love story. There's the role of Boaz as Ruth's kinsman redeemer that points us to Christ as our redeemer. There's the fact that Ruth is a Moabite and all that that means for the story. And then there's the positioning of it in time and the implications of all of that. And all of these things were running through my mind the last couple of weeks when Saturday week ago I found myself down here at the church with three hours to kill waiting for one of my children, waiting to pick up one of my children. And as parents... That's not an uncommon scenario. We drop them somewhere and then we have enough time that it's too long, but not really enough time to go back and do anything useful. So we find ourselves hanging around a lot of the time. And that was a situation I found myself in with three hours to kill. And so I decided that I would water our new gardens here in the church because there were a couple of hot days predicted and many of us have spent a lot of time and energy in getting the gardens all planted out. Um, so I thought I'll give them a good soaking. Now there's not much brain activity involved in garden watering. It's just sort of point and shoot for three hours. So a great opportunity to engage the brain in mulling all of these things over with the Lord. So I'm watering and praying and praying and watering and I'm moving hoses from one tap to the other and everything's going great until I get to the far side of the church along the side of the deck there facing Thompson's Road. 
there is a whole row of little plants there that will one day hopefully become a low hedge of fragrant sweet box. For now, they're just little tiny plants, uh, very susceptible to the hot sun. And when I got round that side, the hose just wouldn't reach. In fact, it didn't come near to where I needed it to be from the nearest tap. So reluctantly, I went back to get the longer hose out from underneath the stairs. And anyone who's worked with that longer hose will know it's not something you want to get out unless you really have to. So after untangling the longer hose for about 15 minutes, getting it from the tap as far as it would go, I discovered that no matter how far I pulled it, no matter how high I held it over my head or how far I shoved my finger into the nozzle of the hose, I could not make the water hit the plants. So back I headed to the spot where we keep the hoses to look for one of these tiny little connector thingies. But there was no little connector thingy to be found. So I had to find other ways of finishing the watering. But a big connector thingy was happening in my mind as the Holy Spirit impressed on me the place and the importance of this book. In many ways, the book of Ruth is like one of these little connector thingies. It's the biblical equivalent of a missing connection. It is small. It is inconspicuous. Only four chapters easily overlooked. But boy, does it have an important role to play in the Bible. To see the book of Ruth as just a pleasant story of family loyalty is to really just see it like this, like a piece of plastic. You might admire its symmetry, you might admire its color and design, but you miss most of what it's there for. We miss We miss all of the connections. And that is the role that the book of Ruth plays in the Bible. The book of Ruth is a critical connector in the history of Israel connecting the period of the judges with the period of the kings. And it does that through this theme of the kingdom of God. And that's a theme that runs right throughout the Bible. Ruth also connects the Old Testament with the New Testament and it does that through this theme of redemption. Another theme that runs strongly through the story, but also strongly through the whole Bible. These are two heavyweight concepts in the Bible, the kingdom of God and the redemption of humanity. They Both of them run right through the Bible. The pattern for God's kingdom was laid down in Eden. Here in that place given to them by God, God's people, Adam and Eve, lived for a time willingly under God's rule. They enjoyed his blessing whilst they lived willingly under his rule. And as we all know, sin destroyed that initial 
notion of the kingdom of God, but it did not deter God from his plan to reign with those whom he had created. The rest of the Bible is essentially the story of God's unfolding redemptive plan for humanity, which is also the story of his establishment of his kingdom rule. And that story is played out in miniature in the book of Ruth. The little book that bears her name punches way, way above its own weight. Now, hopefully this week you have found some time to read through the book of Ruth. We tried to advertise the fact that it would be beneficial if you did, because this morning we're going to work our way through the book. We're not sticking to just the first 17 verses that um, were provided in the bulletin, but we're going to work our way through the whole book of Ruth, because it would be very difficult to tell the whole story with just a small part. So it will be helpful if you've got your scriptures in one form or another to have them open in front of you because I will jump around quite a bit this morning. The book of Ruth begins like this. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. It's an introductory verse. It's an introductory verse that we easily skip over in our haste to get to the beautiful story. But skip over it at your peril because it is absolutely dripping with essential background information. The days when the judges ruled were not Israel's best and brightest years. Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt and had finally entered the promised land. These should have been their best and brightest years, but they were not. And perhaps these years are best summed up by the refrain that is used four times throughout the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was, of course, a king. God was their king. He's always been their king. But they did not recognise his reign because they chose instead to do what was right in their own eyes. So in Israel, effectively, there was no king. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The next piece of information that we're given there is that there was a famine in the land. And that is less a statement about the climate and the environment than it is a commentary on the nation of Israel. You might remember, on the verge of entering the Promised Land, God speaks to Israel through his servant Moses. And within that speech, you'll find these words from Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 17. So, 
If you faithfully obey the commands that I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your new grain, your new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. God said that if they faithfully obeyed, he would send rain, the crops would grow, the cattle would be fattened, they would eat and they would be satisfied in the land that he'd given them. In the light of that promise, therefore, no rain can mean only one thing. Israel had not obeyed. So we're still on verse 1 here. Let's not panic. It's a big verse and we need to, to, to get a grip on what it's telling us so that the rest of the story makes sense. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And my teenage son, if he were to produce a commentary on this verse, his words would be, see that right there? That is a rookie mistake. He's always telling me about rookie mistakes. Apparently I make lots of rookie mistakes, especially with technology. I'm always doing rookie mistakes. If God has delivered you to the promised land and he has called you to remain separate from the surrounding pagan nations, it's not a great idea to get up and leave for a pagan land. Joel would say that's a rookie mistake. Now granted, this was probably a decision made in desperation, but it was definitely not a spur of the moment decision. Bethlehem to Moab is not an easy hike. There's a great big body of water between Bethlehem and Moab. So the journey from Bethlehem to Moab would require travel through the Judean wilderness on the way to Jericho and then a crossing here and back down the other side towards Moab. Can you see what that is, what they're doing there? What this journey is, is a retracing of the path of Israel as they entered the promised land. Remember last week, Glenn spoke about um, the spies going through and where did they go to? They went to Jericho because that was the first land or the first city that they conquered. And so here is this little family from Bethlehem and they're going in the wrong direction. They're going backwards, retracing the journey of Israel into the promised land. 
You might recall Moses gave his farewell speech on the plains of Moab as they were on the verge of entering the promised land. And then under the leadership of Joshua, Israel crossed the Jordan and the first city they conquer is Jericho. And so here is this little family heading in the wrong direction. Now they didn't intend to stay there long, probably just long enough to see out the famine, but three of the four of them would never return. They died in Moab. If we move on to verse two, verse two provides us with lots and lots of names. And if you haven't figured it out already, I love researching Old Testament biblical names because of the insights that they can add to what you're reading. A name, particularly a Hebrew name, is generally not just a name. It is a description and often it is a destiny. The book of Ruth is a veritable feast for someone like me who likes names because you can just about tell the whole story using only the names that appear in that book. And I'm going to attempt to do that for you just now. So we begin with Elimelech, a very important name because it provides for us that connection between the judges and the kings and it, and it provides some important detail in the story. Elimelech means God is king. And it indicates for us that even through all of the turmoil of that period of the judges, God remained Israel's king. But Elimelech's departure from the promised land betrays even his own name and confirms what the book of Judges tells us, that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's reign was not established in the hearts of Israel and apparently in Elimelech's eyes what was right was to leave the promised land. Now Elimelech was married to Naomi whose name means pleasant or pleasantness. Could there be a more lovely description of a person than to say that they are pleasant? Naomi was pleasant, but after multiple tragedies struck her family in Moab, towards the end of chapter one, she asks for her name to be changed. She asks to be called Mara, which means bitter. Now, Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And their names have been the source of much scholarly debate, with the current consensus being that they mean sickness and weakness. And that might provide some insights, perhaps, into the decision that this family made to leave during the times of famine. It may not, maybe coincidence, but sickness and weakness were the boys' names. Perhaps there was some sort of inherited disorder that was within this family. Perhaps they were just sick and weakly children. We don't know. Perhaps their parents feared that they might not survive the famine like other children might. 
The scripture is silent on all of their reasoning, but what we do know is that they both went with their parents and they both died very young. So the family sets out from Bethlehem. It's a very well-known town, especially around this time of year, even people who never set foot in a church have heard of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Bethlehem was an area known for its rich fertility and agricultural production. It was well known as a producer of barley and of plenty of other grains from which bread would be made, hence the name, house of bread. So the name Bethlehem speaks to us of God's generous provision. So this little family was leaving a place of God's generous provision and they were moving to Moab, which means from the father, which sounds quite nice, except that it's not talking about from the father God. Moab refers, the name Moab refers to the incestuous origins of this place. Recall that when Lot and his daughters escaped from Sodom, they lived in a cave. And when Lot became drunk, his daughters both seduced him and both of them fell pregnant to their father. The child of the oldest was named Moab and the Moabites are his descendants. And the child of the younger daughter was called Ben-Ami and the Ammonites are his descendants. Both of these groups of people were antagonists of the nation of Israel. The Ammonites prevented Israel from passing through their lands during the Exodus. And it was the king of Moab who hired Balaam to curse Israel. For these reasons, both the Ammonites and the Moabites were specifically mentioned uh, and forbidden from entering the assembly of the Lord. So this reference to Moab's incestuous origins within its name illustrates the absolute disdain with which Israel held Moab. These were seen as a people with great moral failings. And that becomes very important when we meet this character, Ruth. So the people fail to recognise God's reign and rule amongst them and just as God had warned, the rains dry up, the crops fail and famine strikes the land. And our little family of four does what apparently all of Israel is doing, whatever seems right in their own eyes. For Elimelech and his family, this means leaving Bethlehem, this place of God's provision, and settling in a despised pagan nation. Chapter 1, verse 3, moving on with the pace of a wounded snail here, tragedy strikes in Moab with the death of Elimelech and Naomi finds herself a widowed mother of two in a foreign land. Now, with our social welfare systems that we have in place here, it's difficult for most of us to imagine just how hard that must have been for her. But at least she had two sons 
and they were growing and they would grow up and they would be able to look after her in the future. So her welfare, in that respect at least, might be assured. The boys reach adulthood and both of them marry Moabite women in direct violation of God's command to his people. God had told the Israelites not to marry into the pagan nations around them. And the names of these two ladies were Ruth and Orpah. Now their names probably have Moabite meaning, so it's not as easy for us to, to um, draw anything much from them. But in Hebrew, the name Ruth has come to mean friend or compassionate friend. Orpah, I believe, means something along the lines of droopy or something, so I don't know, maybe she walked with a droop or who knows. We can't read too much into the names of these two ladies, but what the author of this book is at pains to point out is that Ruth is a Moabite. There are no less than seven references. She's not just introduced as a Moabite and thereafter called by her name, Ruth, right through the book she's called the Moabite Ruth. We are left in no doubt that the author wants us to know that here is a woman, Ruth, a widow from a despised nation who became a friend of Israel and from her the saviour would come from her line. Some 10 years into their time in Moab, both of Naomi's sons, Marlon and Kilion, also die. And they leave their respective wives as widows, childless widows, we believe, and their mother without a blood relative in a foreign land. This was now not just a bad situation, it had become, with the death of the two boys, a desperate situation for her. There was no social welfare to rely on, no widow's pension, and she would be forced to rely on the generosity of strangers. At around this time, she hears in verse 6, that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And so with her two widowed daughters, in law, she decides to set off on the return journey back to Judah. Not far out of town, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and she urges them to return to their parents and remain in their homeland. It is the sensible advice to give them. She has no more sons to offer them and even if she could have a son, how old would they be by the time that boy had grown up enough for them to marry? No, my daughters, she says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Clearly, Naomi felt that the three tragedies that had struck her family had come about because of disobedience. They had, after all, left the promised land and then they'd married their sons off to people that God had specifically said not to marry your sons off to. Naomi felt that she was being punished and she didn't want her daughters-in-law to have to take any further part in it. If they were to come back with her, 
they would be the foreigners, the outsiders in this land. Worse than that, they would be the widowed foreigners in an outside land. But in spite of everything that she is feeling, the bitterness that she has, look at what direction she's heading in. 2020 has been a horror year for many people. Many people are hurting. And for some, it has been a much tougher year than others. 2020, for many people, will leave a lingering bitterness. Look at Naomi's response here. In spite of all that she has been through, in spite of all the bitterness in her life, in which direction is she heading? What would be your normal reaction if you are angry at someone? Do you walk away or do you draw closer? I think the divorce rate gives testimony to the fact that when we are angry with someone, we tend to walk away in the opposite direction. We don't tend to move closer to them. Yet here is Naomi with all of this bitterness in her life, moving closer to God, actively taking steps to move closer to God rather than moving further away. Life is unfair and some people are dealt far poorer hands than others, but we all have a choice. Get angry and walk away from God or press into him, even return to him in hard times. Naomi chose to put her trust in the sovereign God and she took steps, in her case, literal steps, to draw closer to him, even in the midst of all of her pain and bitterness. It is an emotional scene as she speaks a blessing over her two daughters-in-law. They kiss, they weep aloud, and most of you, I think, know the outcome. Orpah returns as instructed to her parents. Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law's side and instead she utters one of the most beautiful speeches in all of the Old Testament. Verse 16, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And this is no insignificant statement. For life for a widowed foreigner in Israel would be hard, very hard. For 10 years, this family had lived in a foreign land Moab was a place of immorality. It was a place of idol worship. This was no place for the people of God at that time. And as far as we know, none of the pagans had ever been changed by their presence there until Naomi put one foot in front of the other to publicly declare her allegiance to God. At that point, her faith in God prompted a confession of faith from Ruth whose life would be forevermore changed as a result. 
So the two ladies return to Bethlehem and without a man to provide for them, they must rely upon the safeguards that God has put within the law that ensured that the poor and the foreigner would be taken care of. Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of the harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Ruth must glean the leftover grain from behind the harvesters in the field if she and Naomi are to eat. Now it happened that the fields that Ruth was gleaning belonged to a man named Boaz, who was a relative of Elimelech. And so we return to our name study. Boaz is a name of uncertain origin. It can mean swiftness, but it can also mean strength in him. And this latter meaning provides a certain contrast between Boaz and between the sons of Ruth and Naomi, who were sickness and weakness, and now here is one who is strength in him. But it also points us to the source of that strength. In the time of the judges, when each man did what they thought was right in their own eyes, Boaz was careful to obey the Levitical law. He was careful to leave grains for the foreigners and the poor to collect. Each morning he greeted his workers saying, Lord be with you. And throughout the entire book of Ruth, his actions speak of a man of great integrity. Seeing his generosity and kindness towards Ruth, Naomi hatches a plan to appeal to Boaz to redeem them. And as we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at the story of Tamar, according to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6, when a man died, it was the responsibility of the brother to marry the man's widow, to provide for her, and also to produce an heir to continue the dead man's family line. In the case of there being no surviving um, brother or father-in-law to fulfil that role, here we see this concept extended to the nearest unmarried male relative. And those of you who have read the book of Ruth know what comes next. Naomi has Ruth wash, perfume herself and put on her best clothes. Ruth goes to Boaz at night while he's lying on the threshing floor protecting his barley harvest. This was, after all, the time of the judges. A man had to protect his crops. Ruth goes and on the instruction of Naomi, she uncovers his feet and she lies down at his feet and she waits. Now I know what many of you are thinking at this point because I'm sure I'm not the only one to have thought it. Mm. She uncovers his feet. That's a creative euphemism, if ever I've heard one. Or uncovers his feet, sure she did, and the rest. And those would be perfectly logical things to say if Ruth and Boaz were alive today. 
and if this little incident had perhaps happened last week. If a woman was to approach a man today, a sleeping man, at night and remove the covering from his feet and to lie down, I don't think anyone would need me to explain or to spell out what her intentions might be. But Boaz and Ruth are not alive today. They lived in a very different time and place, governed by very different laws and cultural norms. So it would be very wrong of us to impose a 21st century interpretation on these actions. In their day, it was commonplace for servants to lay at their master's feet. They did this so that they could be available to respond to their every command, whether it came at day or night. What Naomi has instructed Ruth to do here is to approach Boaz in a posture of complete submission. And this was a very dangerous thing to do because Boaz could quite easily have taken advantage of Ruth. And there would have been absolutely nothing she could have done about that. So for her to suggest such an action to her daughter-in-law suggests that Naomi knew enough about the character of this man, Boaz, to be sure that he would not do such a thing. Chapter 3, verse 8. Unsurprisingly, since he's there to protect his grain crop, Boaz awakens startled to hear someone else in the darkness with him. Who are you, he asks. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Effectively, she's just given him a marriage proposal. For a man to spread the corner of his garment over a woman was to claim her as his wife, to offer protection and provision for her. God speaks of Jerusalem in exactly the same way in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine, he says to Israel. Now, Naomi's plan has one flaw, and it's a pretty big flaw, because Boaz is not the nearest kin. There is one nearer. And so Boaz, being the man of integrity that he is, must approach this nearer of kin to see first if he is willing to accept the responsibility for Ruth and Naomi. Now, when a male relative took on the responsibility of kinsman redeemer, he would stand to gain through the taking of the land, but he would also have to provide for the wife and the child that would be produced for this dead man. And in the case of Ruth, this was a Moabite he was going to have to provide for. And she came with a mother-in-law as well. Redemption comes at a price. And it was a price that the nearest kin was not willing to pay, making Boaz the next available kinsman redeemer. 
the end of the book of Ruth provides a fitting contrast with its beginning. Tragedy and death replaced by joy and new life in the marriage of Ruth to Boaz and the birth of a son whom they call Obed. Obed is thought to be from Obadiah and it means servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord from whom would come the beloved King David. So in this way, the book of Ruth provides that connection from the time of the judges to the kings. But at its heart, it is a story of redemption, reminding us of the Exodus when God redeemed Israel out of slavery and pointing forward to the cross where the redemptive actions that Boaz played out on a tiny scale, just for one little family, would extend to all who would seek refuge in Jesus as their saviour. The final name in our long list today doesn't actually appear in the book of Ruth anywhere, but if you take that genealogy that is provided in the end part of chapter 4 of the book and you follow it through to Matthew's genealogy, it leads, of course, to Jesus or Yeshua, whose name means to deliver or to rescue. Tiny baby born generations later, in Ruth's adopted homeland of Bethlehem, grew to a man, and that man redeemed his people from sin. We were once hungry foreigners. We have become his bride. He has become our protector and our provider, and that is the great joy of Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord, as the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi after the birth of Ruth's son, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. So we say to you, praise be to our God who has not left us without a redeemer. Praise be to you, our God, for sending your son on that first miraculous Christmas day. Amen. Would you like to stand? Our music team will lead us in a closing song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. We want to see Jesus. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Shine. 
2020 has panned out for you, may you draw nearer still to God as we move towards a new year. May you be assured of his covering over you and may you allow him to work out his purposes in your life. Amen.